Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased today because we get to talk to Brandon Presser about his book titled The Far Land, 200 Years of Murder, Mania and Mutiny on the South Pacific, published in 2022. The book does a whole bunch of things. I promise it does have a mutiny, quite a famous one really, The Ship of the Bounty, but also investigates why it happened, what happened afterwards, what happened generations afterwards, and what are some of the more pernicious and strange legacies of this story. So Brandon, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast to tell us about your book. Uh, Thanks so much for having me. Before we get into all things South Pacific, can you please introduce yourself a little bit? And then why did you decide to go to Pitcairn? Why did you decide to write a book about this shipwreck? What is significant about this book, writing it now? Yeah. Um, okay, well, yeah, I'll, I'll start at the very beginning. Uh, my name is Brandon Presser. I've been a travel writer for the greater part of two decades. Um, I cut my teeth uh, as a guidebook writer at Lonely Planet and then sort of transitioned that career into being a columnist at Bloomberg, uh, where I write about the intersection of luxury and adventure travel. And um, I found my way to Pickheron uh, to do a magazine article uh, about basically the most... Um, isolated place in the world in which people live or one of the most isolated places in which people live. Um, and, and they were trying to make a play to bring tourism to the Island. But of course this Island is only accessible, um, by cargo freighter, which of course is, you know, part of the adventure. Uh, and so I, I went for a trip that was about six weeks, um, really just with the intention of writing about a 2000 word, uh, magazine story. Uh, but when I was there, uh there was just so so much more that i was compelled for the first time to write a full length non-fiction travelogue that also is sort of this real life thriller about the settlement of the island and the 48 people who live there today Obviously, therefore, quite a story to provoke you to write a whole book about it. But before we get into more about the ship itself and the kind of beginnings of it, this is not, I mean, there's a lot of shipwrecks in the world. This isn't the least known of them. It has been investigated before. What do you think you bring to it? Yes. Well, there are a ton of books and articles written about the history of the bounty in five movies, some fictional, some a little bit more closely related to the truth. Um, And so why did I feel like I wanted to stack another narrative on top of this mountain? Well, I felt as though the entire story hadn't been properly told 
And there's something that guides me in my travel writing, which is is very simply the question why. I think we see a lot of uh, stories in the media covering different places and people uh, in a very surface manner. Um, and, and for me, I, I want to, you know, take apart the clock and figure out how it ticks. Uh, and, and so putting the question, why, why did this mutiny happen? And how was the fallout afterwards um, really guided me to, to a new place in in this storytelling endeavor. And I found that rather than it being a story simply about the leader of the mutiny, uh, Fletcher Christian, um, that it was much more of an ensemble affair that included the previously marginalized voices of a dozen Tahitian women. And I thought that it would be really important to bring their perspective back into the conversation. Hmm. Thank you for giving us um, that context to be getting into then, uh, I suppose, picking apart, as you said, the clock, what, what made this tick. But to make sure everyone can follow along with that, can we start with the what before we get to the why? Yeah, yeah. start at the very what, beginning. Exactly. So what is the ship called the Bounty? What is it like? What was it built for? Can you start us there? Yes. Um, so the Bounty was a retrofitted vessel with the goal of sailing from the UK to Tahiti to collect samples of breadfruit. And the idea was that it was going to bring the breadfruit to Jamaica Colony to feed the slaves as a inexpensive way of providing sustenance to the slaves working on the plantations in Jamaica. So um, the ship went off with um, Bly, who was a, a lieutenant and was eager to take on the mission to become a captain. And um, for a variety of reasons, leaving late having storms along the way, uh, they had to stay in Tahiti and wait for the seasons to change. Um, and so the uh, sailors on board befriended the Tahitians when they arrived. Some of them even had children with the Tahitians upon their arrival. And uh, when it was time to go, there were many mixed feelings about leaving this so-called paradise and returning to the gloom of London. So this then takes us to the mutiny. And I have to say, I really appreciated that your book doesn't kind of lead up and then the end is the mutiny, right? In many ways, the mutiny is kind of the beginning. So can you tell us kind of what, what happened and I think more importantly, why do you think the men mutinied? Mm. Right. Yes. I. It was really important for me that the mutiny sort of be the end of Act One in a way. You know, if you were trying to sort of think of it as a, a three-act book, um, it's it's this set piece that I, I think you know. Um, nautical history enthusiasts 
know fairly well, or, you know, maybe if they've seen one of the Hollywood movies um, about it. And um, it, it was really hard to write because while I was able to pull in a lot of documents and sources about all of the other parts of the book, the mutiny, there's like 5% that's sort of a, a, a bit of a mystery because Christian's logbook remains nowhere to be found. Um, and there is an eyewitness account of him tearing out the pages of his book and throwing it into the sea. Um, and, and because we're sort of missing um, a bit of the motivation, um, I, I actually chatted with a number of psychologists to try to pull um, uh, sort of the, the gray bits a little closer together. Because I think that there was obviously building tension. You know, people really didn't want to go back um, on the rough seas. They were really happy where they were. They were starting to carve out a new life, you know, over the months that they were there. Um, but the mutiny actually happened three weeks after return their their adventure, they're the beginning of the journey to return to, by way of Jamaica. Um, something that's important to know is that um, Christian had the idea of a mutiny in his head um, because he had seen a relative before embarking on this journey who had spoken to him about how he felt the need to mutiny against a different captain. I think mutiny was sort of in the air during really harsh naval times as tensions were growing with France. Um, so I think when it's already on the mind, um, it was like a little bit easier for it to actually come into action. And I think all of it really happened with the flick of a wrist. I, I don't think it was massively premeditated. I think there was this upswell in energy from, with Christian and his men. And then all of a sudden it was, it was done. And, and Bly was set out to see there was no murder. The loyalists and Bly were put in a dinghy and they were set out to sea, presumably to die. <laughs> no murder, but not exactly the nicest way to go about things. Um, but important to, I think, end Act 1 that way. Moving then to, I suppose, Act 2. Um, this is another thing that I think is important for us to remember that doesn't necessarily come across in kind of the film side of it, perhaps, is that although this is happening really far away from really anyone else, uh, the news of it has an impact, right? And you write about this in the book, that the incident might be isolated, but the impact isn't. So could we maybe go back over to the United Kingdom uh, at this point and help, and if you could help us understand how the news of this mutiny had an impact and especially I think maybe speak to some of the tropes and conceptions it helped create that I think at least we very much still have around paradise islands in the Pacific. Mm, yes, definitely. I think that it's important to remember first and foremost that, uh, you know, we as um, information collecting humans have always been 
prone to sensationalist headlines um, that I don't think um, it's merely a symptom of present day. Um, We've always loved gossip. We've always loved a good, true, fantastical story, if that makes sense. And, And the disappearance of the bounty after the mutiny was one of those fantastical, sensational, real life items that hit the news in London. Because Miracle of Miracles, Bly actually managed to make it all the way to present day Indonesia um, and make it all the way back to the UK and told the story of the mutiny. Um, And when it arrived, London society was wrapped and they began throwing Tahitian themed parties um, and one of the most valuable items at the time was a pineapple, which of course could only be grown in a tropical um, setting. And people used to buy pineapples for what is the equivalent of thousands of dollars and rent out those pineapples to people to put in their homes when they would have a party. And there's there's actually documentation of people having Tahitian-themed orgies uh, at this time. So, you know, the world was was wrapped uh, by this incredible disappearance of these men. And, you know, I think if you take a step back and you think about it, you know, we've thought in the Judeo-Christian canon that a paradise is a garden, right? Garden of Eden. So how did we get to this place now in, you know, modern times where you see a credit card commercial or, a, you know, Corona beer commercial of, uh, of people sitting on a, a sandy beach with a palm tree? Well, that really originates in this bounty mythology. And it's been perpetuated forward through the years where, um, you know, during the Second World War, uh, people were in the Pacific Theater and saw these beautiful islands. And, you know, then Hawaii became a state shortly thereafter. And then only a year after that, commercial flying really took off. Um, so we've had this narrative for 200 plus years that keeps growing and growing, but it really builds on the bounty. Hmm fascinating to trace that back given just how prevalent um, it still very much is and as you've just mentioned has been since. If we move then to the present to some degree, in my mind at least this is Act 3 and I admit interviewer's prerogative, I have a bunch of questions about Act 3 um, yeah. even if listeners, you know of course you can go read the book to get more details about Acts 1 and 2 um, but to move to Act 3 in some ways, it seems like that's where the story ends, right? They go out, they, the people who wanted to stay in Tahiti, they get to stay, they have all the nice things they want. The massive story breaks in the UK, etc. But there's still 48 people living on Pitcairn, um, really far away from anyone anywhere else. Seven generations since the bounty. Why are there still people there? Uh, that's a 
a great question. And that was one of my big whys um, when I went to visit. So, I mean, I, I should say upfront that the um, book seesaws between two timelines throughout the entire narrative. And I think that that is one of the ways in which the story becomes new. I think there are accounts of what happened 200 years ago, and there are accounts of what happened or what is happening today, but by merging them and sort of having them ricochet off one another, I think it builds the narrative tension in a new way. And a lot of, you know, the first half of the book, let's say, is, you know, setting up those dominoes, introducing all of those characters 200 years ago, and seeing their character echoes in people who live there now. And then all of a sudden, all the dominoes just fall in the second half of the book, as you know, all those relationships and everyone's differing intentions, but up against each other. Um, and, you know, dark, dark things uh, begin to happen. I would say, though, that the people who live there today, most of them are the descendants, right, of the fugitive um, bounty mutineers. And they are descendants of these um, British men and their Tahitian wives. Um, and they essentially created a new culture and a new, even to the extent of having a, a, a pigeon pickern language. And they see their island as their domain, as their realm, as their country, as their place of heritage, which they rule. Uh, they have a democratic, you know, government, this micro democratic government. Um, but there is this aspect that it is sort of a kingdom of mutineers um, that persists. Which is fascinating. I could definitely see why that would provoke <laughs> a lot of questions and investigation. But I was also intrigued to learn from the book that there's also a related population on Norfolk Island. So could you kind of tell us to what extent is this sort of idea of a kingdom and a very small population also true there? What's the relationship between them? Even how do you get between them? Mm, yeah, for me, that was a tricky plot twist. Um, I'm Canadian. Um, I currently live in the United States. And I think for an, from the North American perspective, uh, Norfolk Island is a, is a blank spot. It's not particularly well known. Um, you know, it is much more well known for Australians um, and Kiwis. Um, and, and basically, for me, it was a record scratch um, moment that there was somehow a second island inhabited by even more descendants of these mutineers. Uh, what occurred was um, a couple of generations after Pickern was settled, the population had ballooned to almost 200 people. And it was around at the same time that um, the penal colonies around Australia were um, 
growing uh, with a lot of um, British prisoners. And uh, the Pickerners uh, wrote to Queen Victoria and asked if there was another island somewhere in her realm in which they could move because they had outgrown their tiny island of Pickern, which is for reference about the size of Central Park in New York City. But with and mountains. With, with incredible verticality. Uh, so it feels much, much larger because you're constantly climbing up and down and up and down. Um, so uh, it, it, at the time, they were consolidating penal colonies and they had a colony on Norfolk Island and they were moving all of the prisoners to Tasmania. Um, so they were given the ruins uh, of, the, of the prison. So Pickern actually... Um, lost all of its citizens, all of the descendants took a rickety ship all the way to Norfolk Island. It took about five weeks um, and they stayed for about 18 months, but the climate was really different. Um, So they had to grow different things and they had to learn new farming and the recipes changed and, um, a handful of them, well, more than a handful, about a third of them were very homesick and decided to return to Pickern Island uh, 18 months after settling Norfolk Island. So that's how the population split. And the way that Norfolk Islanders think of Pickern, it's um, with reverence, but also fear. It's... um, there's this Holy Land aspect, you know, uh, Norfolk Islanders will do a pilgrimage to Pickern or spend a year on Pickern, you know, to be in that Holy Land of, of ancestors. But a lot of them are are fear, fearful. There, there's this dark mana, this dark energy on, on Pickern that a lot of them uh, find repellent. Hmm. Very interesting relationship between the two. Thank you for taking us through that. Um, And if anyone hasn't already pulled up a map, this would definitely be a good time (laughs) to do so. Um, I want to talk a bit more about kind of the different perceptions that the people within the community have, because I think that's something that comes out very much from the present day timeline in the book is not just who the people are, but how do they think and what do they think of the others in the community? And I'm particularly intrigued by one group calling some of the others in the group, quote, the museum people. Mm. What's going on with this? Ooh, yeah. Um, that was one of the things that I found um most compelling that turn of phrase really stuck with me and and you have to remember i wasn't furiously jotting down notes during my entire time that i was there because really i thought i was just writing a two thousand word adventure travel piece um for for a magazine so it was it was those thorny bits and that was those weird turns of phrase um you know that really caught my attention after kind of stuck in my brain after I had returned home. And, and, and this was one of them, the idea that they were living in, that they were dwelling in a living museum um, was something that was really fascinating because um, they are aware that they are 
um, to many people, a cultural oddity. Many of them have been invited all over the world simply to attend a gala or attend some sort of event as the famed descendants of these mutineers, much in the way that a a royal, a, a duke or a prince would be invited to some sort of soiree just to show face. And I think, um, you know, as these walking, talking pieces of history, it can, it, it can kind of create this bizarre sense of self-importance. Um, and it's really bizarre to be in a place with no functioning electricity and, and cistern water and getting your hands, you know, filthy in the dirt trying to grow tarot but then at the same time you sort of perceive yourself as this royal of sorts it's a, it's a really bizarre juxtaposition hmm. no absolutely um i'd like to do something in my next two questions similarly i suppose but on a much smaller level to what you describe doing in the book of setting up a domino and then asking you to tip it over so hmm. uh, to start off with add an extra sort of cultural element to all of this. How did the Pitcairners become Seventh-day Adventists? Mm. That was another record scratch moment for me, Um, you know, because they have been so diligent in preserving their history. Um, And of course, it's this strange melding of Anglican Christianity and Tahitian values um, that when I found out that they were Adventists, um, you know, that was just another topic where I had to go deep down. But essentially, the short of it was they had received some brochure material. You know, this is uh, this is much much after the mutiny and the settlement. Um, it, it was a couple of generations later, um, they had received some brochure material that was mailed to them from an Adventist office in California. Um, and, and really they thought, you know, this sounds pretty neat. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not much more complicated than that, but I think, you know, the Adventist movement was losing steam in America and they were looking for, um, new people to bring into the faith. Um, mm. and the Pickerners were an easy target. Hmm. Fascinating. If we then tip over the dominoes, so we've got this strange juxtaposition of trying to grow things, but also being like, this is our kingdom and we are in charge of the memory and the legacy and all the things. We've got this very particular religious culture that says a whole bunch of things about being nice to people and equality, etc. We've got the strange origin of this all starts with a mutiny, which is not the least violent thing in the world, and some very strange British cultural conceptions of indigenous people and also gender, patriarchy, honestly, nastiness, I think is a pretty fair description. Yeah. All of this kind of comes together in a lot of ways. And you have this great sentence that is a question. I'm just going to ask your own words back to you because I think you put it pretty well. Quote, <laughs> the island's cultures, the island's culture, sorry, had spun off into a dark aberration of its Tahitian past, 
which seemed particularly glaring in light of Pitcairn's purported Christian and Adventist values. Where did things go so terribly wrong? Yeah. Can we tip all the dominoes together? <laughs> yeah. I think that um that's the que- that's the one of the big questions in the book that I uh, bring back around a few times to try to figure it out. Is there a tipping point? Is there a point of inflection in which everything suddenly changed and I I don't think there is. Mm. I think that um I, I, I mean, there's some dark, dark things that happened 200 years ago with the settlement of the island, which I often say, uh, you know, is a real life Lord of the Flies. Um, and that darkness does persist. And there are some dark things that have happened in present day, you know, only 20 years ago. Um What set the stage for that darkness, I think, is sort of a death by a thousand cuts. Um, Mm -hmm. It's not one particular cut that, you know, was Mm -hmm. the, the, the fatal blow and the, and the precursor of, of um, such darkness. I think it was little, little traumas everywhere um, Mm -hmm. that when you add them up, created this some total, of a conflicting intentions and, and 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 shifting ideologies to best serve the individuals who were grasping for power. Mm. Mm-hmm. And to me, at least, that seems a very important contribution, an important finding, if we're going to put this in academic terms, because it is easy to go, oh, it's this one thing. But mm. that's quite often not the case um and even in the really nasty things that's quite often not the case um so i found it quite useful to see that you know in many ways you could call this kind of the most extreme the furthest away the smallest group and you know we're not talking about hitler or stalin or anything like that and yet it's still the same idea of it's not one thing it is all the pieces coming together so i i think in a lot of ways that that makes sense and is sort of helpful in a strange sense Mm. It, it's this opportunity to study human behavior. You know, what happens when around two dozen people are completely isolated from the from the rest of the world and they have to create their own culture? You know, it can go a variety of different ways. You know, it, it's mm. that survivor TV show moment where you watch these group dynamics coalesce. And I think... It was really important for me that every um, there was no perennially good or patently evil character that everyone had those shades of gray because that's what humans are and we can be you know victims of our own in- intentions and selfishness um, and sometimes you give and sometimes you take. And there is this sort of Game of Thrones quality, you know, even though it's on such a small scale where everyone has their own intentions and objectives and you watch it all kind of collide. Mm -hmm. And, And that's more real than one character having 
one uh, tyrannical moment as this often has been presented in the past. And Mm -hmm. I think one of the other things that was really important to me was we need to fathom that history isn't only told through traditionally Western means, which is writing something down on a piece of paper. Um, even that, the, the veracity of that should be put into question always. Um, but in Tahitian culture, it's oral tradition um, that is considered equally as valid. Um, so having dozens and hundreds of discussions on um, what was happening at the time in Tahiti with Tahitian professors and and, and historians uh, and pulling in those oral traditions, I count those as equally valid. And, and that's why I think the balance of the story feels very new because there's so much new oral tradition that has brought been brought into this. Mm. Yeah, and I'm, I'm glad you highlighted that as well for our listeners. I'd like to um, kind of apply what we've just discussed almost to a new topic, um, because there is, of course, at least one uh, community outside of the island that is fascinated by it, and I believe it's stamp collectors. Is that right? Mm. So <laughs> yeah. it's, it's not like the island is still completely isolated. Um, it is obviously quite hard to get to, and I might ask you to tell us a little bit about that in a moment. Um, but there is some interaction with tourism, with the outside world. Can you tell us a bit about the extent to which the islanders are interested in tourism? Why might they be interested in tourism? I think the interest and the push for tourism um, now kind of lives in the pre-pandemic zeitgeist, where I think tourism was trundling along, uh, moving faster and faster and faster. Like even in my own career and getting assignments from my editors, I was finding that I was going to more and more and more far-flung places. Doors were opening to destinations um, that had really never seen um, such an influx of, of, of tourists before. Um, I think that the pandemic was a bit of a reset um, and I think that, um, you know, we don't need to go into ge- the geopolitics of, of today. Um, but I, th- I th- believe that Pickern wanted to ride that pre-pandemic wave where they wanted to be that new, cool destination, you know, bragging rights. I've been to the one of the most, you know, difficult places to get to. And, and, and that is a form of luxury in itself to go where no one else is going or has gone. And, you know, the Island, it doesn't really have any beaches. It, it, it's not that paradise destination that you might think of. Um, you know, it's, it's punishingly vertical. It's basically just a volcanic outcrop in the middle of the ocean. There's some really compelling you know, scuba diving. And, you know, there's even bits of the bounty that are wrecked, you know, right off the coast that I went and swam and, and saw. Um, 
so I think it's it's that bragging right aspect that the Pickerners were were hoping to um, capitalize on, and I think they're still you know, hoping for tourists to this day, a lot of cruises are starting to add uh, Pig Heron as a stop, um, you know, but there are some restrictions about going onto the island. Sometimes the Pig come to the cruise to, you know, sell trinkets or t-shirts or anything like that, but it's, it's the cash infusion. Um, there are everyone on Pig on the dole. Um, so if you're, uh, living in the UK, your tax dollars are actually going to pick earners. Um, and they have a very healthy operational budget and they work. Um, there's a grocery store on the island. You can be the postmaster. You can be the head of transportation, which involves, you know, clearing the dirt roads of branches. Uh, but they need more money. Um, so that really ultimately is the tourism goal, like it is for most destinations, which is interesting to kind of think about what might happen next on that front. So I've mentioned this a few times, um, and I think it's worth actually surfacing properly into the conversation. We've both referenced just how isolated this island is. How does one get to and from the island today? Mm. Um, that is, uh, entire adventure unto itself. And first and foremost, it's important to know that no commercial conveyance, no aircraft has ever landed on the Island simply because it's, it's too jagged and vertical. So there is a cargo freighter that makes a run to the island with supplies, you know, everything from pallets of eggs to a new refrigerator. And uh, it's a quarterly service and it starts in New Zealand and it takes two weeks to reach Pickern. And on the way, it stops at an island called Mangareva, which is um, part of French Polynesia. And it will pick up passengers at a maximum of 12 people. And it will complete three more days of the journey to reach Pickern. And um, they use that service before that, that freighter returns to New Zealand, the Pickerners use that service to seek any medical attention if they need to um, go to Tahiti for anything, to see the dentist. Um, one passenger had a pacemaker and needed to have a regular checkup for it. Uh, and, and so that service zippers between Mangareva and Pickern um, for a little moment in time moving uh, the Pickerners around before it makes that journey back. So it's a very long-winded way of saying four times a year you can reach the island. Um, and I was there in one of those in-between services where it was kind of waiting to shuttle a few passengers around. That's pretty remote. Um, so <laughs> especially in today's world where most places most of us go are not that remote, uh, I'm, I'm glad I asked you to kind of spell it out for us because that's not cool. really in our conception anymore. Um, before I ask my kind of big picture wrap up questions, I do have a small one I'd love to pick up on from the beginning. This whole thing started uh, by seeking breadfruit to bring to the Caribbean to feed enslaved people there. 
did breadfruit ever make it to the Caribbean? That's one of the million dollar questions of the <laughs> of the bounty saga. Was it all worth it? You know, they they Was go any all- of it worth it. Can you imagine spending two years of your life? This is Bly. Can you imagine spending two years of your life getting a piece of fruit? Mm-hmm. That two, you know, your your precious short, you know, pre-modern medicine life. And the insane part of it all was that obviously the mission failed because of the mutiny and and Bly went on a second mission to do it all over again and he was technically successful he did bring the breadfruit to Jamaica but the slaves would not eat it and the project was folded so not only did he go to Tahiti (laughs) once he went twice suffered a mutiny spent four years of his life essentially getting this breadfruit to jamaica and then it never took off wow okay well i could never have a grocery trip that bad um, <laughs> so I'm, I'm glad i asked you for that little coda the next there. time you're in line at the grocery store just remember that there was someone who spent four years of their life getting a pre- piece of fruit that no one would eat wow All right. Well, on a much bigger picture level than that particular, though, entertaining story. um, Before I ask you about your future work, is there anything else you'd like to tell us about this book? Um, I think beyond bringing uh, new historical elements and new personality perspectives um, and and balancing out that white male narrative um, with an incredibly compelling cast of female um, characters and women of color. Um, It was really important for me to um, write a book for the ADD brain in a way. I wanted to present all of this information not in a hard-nosed academic manner, but in a way uh, that felt novelistic, that felt exciting, that really each chapter and each scene builds um, on itself. Um, there's an element of mystery. Um, you know, the, the book starts with the end and a, and a sole survivor of the original mutineers. Um, but the identity of that man, that final person that, uh, that makes it through all of the deceit and murder and bloodshed you don't find out who it is until the end um and and so there are stakes um i had a friend who read the book and she said you know i liked it but it went too quick and i i don't think i've ever (laughs) read a book where i was like wow this book was too short and and, and so i felt (laughs) like it was this weird compliment in a way but i don't think she meant it as such um but but that's that was really important to me. I think you know, there's a lot to learn and this whole world to explore. But I wanted to do it in a really captivating, fun, zippy way that just you know blows you through this kingdom of oddities. Hmm. Great note to end our discussion about the book on, leaving <sighs> me with only my final question: um, What's next? What might you be working on now that this book is done? Since then, anything about your work you'd like to highlight? Um, yeah, I, I, I'm working on another book right now. Um, uh, that book um, is uh, a little bit closer to home. Um, it's um, exploring um, 
some really interesting facets of um, leisure uh, in America. Um, it's going to be a little bit more humorous. Um, as far as I know, no character uh, dies, uh, which uh, wow. is very, very different from the, <laughs> the Picard and Adventure. Um, but um, I, I received a really funny comment when I was um, going through edits on the on the Farland. Uh, my editor said, "You're kind of funny." Uh, which I thought was was interesting because uh, because really I, I can't stress it enough <laughs> that the narrative is is dark. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no. The, the subtitle is what murder mania murder, and mutiny. Right. Yeah. yeah. If, if there's murder in the title of the book, you know it's like kind of a dark book. And mm. she told me she was like, you know, you're kind of funny uh, because there are these there are little kind of quirky moments, especially in in, in my timeline as I'm, I'm interacting um, with the modern day pickerners. Um, and I, I'm bringing some of that um, sort of narrative quirk to the the next book that I'm working on. Um, I'm re- I'm really excited about it. Um, it's 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 definitely a, a different uh, avenue. But that's sort of the beauty of having a travel writing career is that you um, you know you zero in on a topic of interest and you live and breathe that topic for the length of you know whatever you're producing, be it. Uh, you know, 2000 word article or a hundred thousand word um, book, but you get to wear many different hats and you get to try different styles. Um, so um, you know, there was a moment where I thought, you know, maybe I should stick in nautical history. Um, but I like the idea that I think the, my future of book writing will sort of bounce around, you know, all within kind of the travel domain, but different styles and genre. Well, that sounds exciting. Best of luck with yeah. that project. Yeah. And of course, uh, while you're working on it, listeners can read the book that's got murder in the title. Specifically, the title is The Far Land, 200 Years of Murder, Mania and Mutiny in the South Pacific. Brandon, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast to tell us about the book. Thank you so much for having me.